Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. My guest today, Ash Carter, served as President Obama's Secretary of Defense from 2015 to 2017. And what made Ash Carter so unique among his predecessors was that by the time he became Secretary of Defense, he'd already spent nearly 30 years working at the Pentagon. This included stints as both the Deputy Secretary of Defense and as the number three in the department, a position often referred to as the Acquisitions Czar. Ash Carter is out with a new book, Inside the Five-Sided Box, Lessons from a Lifetime of Leadership in the Pentagon. And this is not your conventional Washington, D.C. memoir. Rather, what I found so valuable about the book is that it offers a grounds-eye view of how the world's largest national security bureaucracy operates. Decisions made at the Pentagon, from the kinds of weapons bought to the bases that are open to personnel decisions, really do have world-shaping implications, and this book takes you inside that decision-making process. In our conversation, we kick off discussing just the sheer vastness of the Pentagon. The annual budget of the Department of Defense is about half of all discretionary spending in the United States, that is money that is spent on government programs, excluding things like Social Security and Medicare. This comes to over $700 billion. For comparison's sake, the budget of the State Department is about $50 billion, and the UN peacekeeping budget is under $7 billion. And much of our conversation focuses on what he thinks the United States and the world gets for that huge investment. We also discuss his views on the role of the United Nations in UN peacekeeping, and also the significance of the fact that the United States has not had a Senate-confirmed Secretary of Defense since Jim Mattis left in December. A quick note before we start, if you are new to the show, welcome. I post interviews with interesting people in foreign policy and world affairs twice a week, every week. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to view our robust archives. Also, feel free to send me an email if there is a topic you'd like me to cover or a person you'd think I should interview. You can do so using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Love hearing from you guys. Keep your suggestions coming. And for those of you who want even more Global Dispatches, become a premium subscriber to unlock bonus episodes. You can do so using the link in the description field of the podcast or just go to the homepage. All right. Now, here is my conversation with former Secretary of Defense, Ash Carter. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. 
Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. One thing I I really appreciated about your book that I think a lot of the listeners of this show will gain a a lot of value in is how it offers almost like a user guide to the Pentagon, to the national security bureaucracy. And I think listeners will find a lot of value in in your book to that end. That's a good description of it, Uh, Mark. It is supposed to be exactly a user or an executive guide for future leaders who uh, to the this Pentagon, this vast place across the Potomac River that many uh, will touch in one way or another and certainly have seen and wonder what goes on inside. And uh, um, so it's not a Washington memoir. It's not a uh, kiss and tell uh, kind of book. It's a different kind of book. And I'm glad to hear you say that. You know, one thing I really appreciated about the book was how at the outset you put into perspective just the, the vastness of the national security bureaucracy of, of the Pentagon, just how vast the Department of Defense is. Can you sort of just help listeners understand what we're talking about when we say the Department of Defense? So let's talk first about employees. It has more employees than Amazon, FedEx, McDonald's. Target, and GE combined. Uh, It does more R&D than Apple, Google, and Microsoft, again, combined. Um, It has the largest real property holdings of any institution in the world, uh, as large, if you put them all together, as the state of Pennsylvania, which is a pretty big state. Uh, And it has a budget that's larger than the GDP of all but very few countries. So it is the largest enterprise in the world. And if you're the Secretary of Defense, the number one, which I was, but I was also the the number two, the COO, Deputy Secretary of Defense, and the number three, this top weapons and technology buyer, um, then you have on your hands the biggest management task on planet Earth. Most people think of the Secretary of Defense as a policymaker, which uh, he, or maybe sometime in the future, she also is, um, but is also a manager of the world's largest enterprise and what is half of the U.S. federal government. Yeah, so, so half of discretionary spending, about $700 billion, uh, is the, the annual outlay of the Department of Defense. I guess, taking a step back, what does the average American citizen, what does U.S. foreign policy get for its return on that investment? Well, it's a good question because people ask that all the time. It's an awful lot of money uh, for defense. And why is it so much? And is it really used well? Let me take the second part first, Mark. In the opening chapters of the book are actually about spending money on high-tech systems and how necessary it is for the leadership of the the Department of Defense to do that in a way that there is not the waste and abuse that so discredits the whole enterprise. I mean, as Secretary of Defense, I would be embarrassed. How could I go to the taxpayer and ask for that much money if I knew that some of it wasn't being used well or was even wasted. And so I was a real hawk about that. And I explain in the book how 
that needn't be so that it be wasted. How good program manager management, what the ingredients of good program management are, so you don't have uh, uh, expensive toilet seats or Obamacare websites in in the, in the Department of Defense. Um, now you say, why is it a budget as big as it is? Uh, the first thing I guess I got to say, Mark, is that. There isn't a mathematical formula that gets you to seven. It's more like 750 billion uh, these days. There's a lot of history in there as well. Um, for example, during the time that I was secretary or deputy secretary or undersecretary, we never got a budget at the beginning of the fiscal year except in one year. So what was happening in Washington was gridlock and big concern over the deficit and that more than anything else in, including everything that was happening around the world is what drove the size of the defense budget i also write in the book that dick cheney my, one of my predecessors and a friend of mine uh he presided over the largest decrease ever in the defense budget and that wasn't because he wanted to it was because the soviet union ended and all of a sudden there was no support for it for it anymore. So there's a lot of history that goes in there. At the same time, if you ask me, does it have to be that big, Mark, I just tell you that uh, we can make good use of that much money because we have five major serious competitors, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, and terrorism. Remember, each of them, those potential opponents, potential or actual opponents, all we are all they think of. We have to think of all five of them. And so it's in the nature of our role in the world and our responsibilities that we have a lot of things that we're trying to do uh, at once. And that's one reason why we can make well, good use of that much money. Well, well, let me ask you this then. Um, you know, say the budget were cut by 10%. So, you know, over $70 billion, which is, you know, for comparison's sake, more than the budget of the Department of State, which is about $50 billion, or about the, the budget of the Department of Education. So say there's like a 10% cut. You know, is the world a meaningfully different place with a defense department budget that is 10% less than it is today? Is international relations affected in any profound or meaningful way? Well, I wouldn't necessarily go that far, but I also want to stress the consequences of what seems like a modest reduction in the defense budget. Let me just play that out a little bit. Please. If you did that, if you did that in one year, how do you take that much money out of the defense budget in one year? It It, it is, uh, may not be apparent to many people in your, your audience, but if they think about it, they'll get this immediately. A lot of the funding is locked into how many troops you have, and it's against the law to just kick 10% of them out, mm -hmm. or even more if you're going to take all the money out of um out of out of uh, personnel, uh, you can't change their retirement and their health care expenses, um, and so you end up going to the parts of the to, that ten percent gets actually reflected in a much smaller part of the budget, principally readiness. So if you suddenly impose that big a cut on defense, it turns out to be 
very inefficiently deployed. So, now, so if you ease in cuts over a longer period of time, which has happened, you know, and we can plan for that, and we can adjust for that, we kind of minimize the damage. But suddenness just doesn't work. You have long-term contracts you can't get out of. You have people you can't just throw overboard, and you end up, uh, it ends up sure. distorting the enterprise more than you'd think by just uh, imagining the number 10% to be small. I guess, sure. So, so you know, say it's gradually reduced over time by, by a set amount. Is is international relations affected? Are any of those five areas um, impacted in any sort of big, meaningful way? I mean, is there like a guns versus butter argument that could be made to suggest that we ought to reduce the budget by, say, 10%? Well, uh, let's see. Uh, I think that Probably what would happen is that we would begin to prioritize our commitments even more than we do now. Hmm. And that might mean that some areas of the world we were less well prepared to deal with. And if Americans are okay with that, I mean, our current guidance is to be able to dominate any potential threat to the United States. Uh, if you want less than that, you can pay for less than that. Uh, it would all—it might also mean that it, we uh, invested less in the long term in order to stay sh- safe in the short term, which is what many governments do that don't invest enough in themselves. Let's take a city government and filling the potholes and in, uh, improving the water system and so forth, the subway system. It catches up with you over time. Uh, so that's the it's that's not the end of the world. That isn't a change in geopolitics, uh, but it's less security for the United States and maybe less wisdom in the way that we strategically and over time uh, allocate our dollars. A- a- when you say guns versus butter, I just want to say one thing that's very important to me, Mark. Yes, say this in the book, which is I never ever as Secretary of Defense, argued for my budget at the expense of someone else's. I was invited to do so repeatedly. And my argument back to that was that I believed that other kinds of government spending, whether it was on infrastructure or research and development or education, were important parts of the long-term national strength. And since that was the larger mission that I was charged with, I wasn't going to argue that my mission was more important than theirs, so important that they should be disinvested in uh, in order for me to get extra investment. That would have been an easy argument to make, and believe me, I was asked to make that argument many times, but I always declined to do so. uh, you know, a lot of my audience um, you know, are interested in the United Nations, maybe work at the UN or, or, or um, in various international organizations. Uh, I'm interested and curious to get um, both your take on what you see as the value of UN peacekeeping and UN peacekeepers. And again, just kind of put it in budgetary terms, it's about like less than 1% of the, the uh, budget of the Department of Defense, about $7 billion to deploy 100,000 troops to 14 uh, places across the world is, is what UN peacekeeping is. So I'm curious to get both what your take is on UN peacekeeping and their role or not in US national security and foreign policy, but also sort of the 
broader sense of how the Pentagon Department of Depre- uh, Defense sort of considers approaches UN peacekeeping? Uh, both, both very good questions. I mean, let's start with the big one, which is why the United Nations in the first place, and why do we cooperate with the United Nations as a matter of our security? Um, and it is because the United Nations fills a niche in the ecosystem that is needed to keep the world safe and uh, to protect people in the broadest sense. And that is, it does things that um, no individual country is quite incentivized to do, but humanity working together is incentivized uh, to do simply. And so it reflects our higher values of collective good. And in that sense, I'm, I am, am and always have been a supporter of the United Nations. It also reflects the values of the Enlightenment uh, that I think are also the values that underlie the political founding of my own country. Uh, so it's very comfortable uh, for me to believe in the United Nations. As to peacekeeping itself, peacekeeping is a type of military operation, and you have to be very clear about what you're talking about. Um, and in the context of that kind of clarity, I support UN peacekeeping. It has to be, first of all, or it is most easily accomplished if it is truly, Mark, you know this, keeping a peace and not trying to make a peace. And so I had the miserable experience of watching Srebrenica uh, in the 1990s during we're Sorry, speaking. We're speaking right now on the 27th uh, anniversary of uh, the massacre in Srebrenica. Well, I today. remember it vividly. I was in the Secretary of Defense's morning staff meeting. I was an Assistant Secretary of Defense, and on CNN, it was showing UN supposed peacekeepers uh, essentially surrendering a helpless population to um, uh, uh, bar- barbarians who were intent upon slaughtering at least the males and did so. And why was that? Well, it was because they were UN peacekeepers, which were meant to be keeping a peace, which is a militarily a lot less demanding than making a peace. And there was no peace in Bosnia in those days. Um, And so you, if you're going to make peace, you have to go in much heavier and uh, much more ready for war. And the countries that contribute to a UN peacekeeping mission have to be willing to bear a larger sacrifice and a larger risk. Uh, And that's a different kind of kettle of fish. And in those cases, when that kind of risk is involved, I mean, even I, as the US Secretary of Defense, a country that has historically been very supportive of the UN, I would be very wary of putting our people at high risk under a command and control structure that I, as Secretary of Defense, number two in the chain of command, more importantly, the number one in the chain of command in the United States, the commander in chief, the president, didn't control. So as long as it's peacekeeping, I think it's really important. And there will be occasions in peacekeeping where force is required, but it's it's force at the margins of a generally peaceful situation. So within that definition, I think the UN can reasonably be expected to take it on. But if it gets to higher levels of violence and force required, 
then I think national governments are just going to be very reluctant to surrender their troops, their reputations, but more importantly, uh, the blood of their young people to an international organization. It's just, it's just human nature. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, a lot of the peacekeeping missions today are sort of that messy in between of the two that you described, the straight up peacekeeping, uh, you know, enforcing a peace agreement versus, you know, actually like it going out and enforcing a peace, you know, something like the Central African Republic, right, where you have um, yeah. a few thousand peacekeepers there. You know, and if they weren't there, maybe they would be a genocide or some sort of mass atrocity that would compel some sort of international intervention that perhaps the U.S. would be, you know, put pressure would be applied to to deploy troops there. Well, uh, generally speaking, it's most appropriate if the people who are trying to keep the peace, you're describing a situation where you're trying to keep the lid on enough that widespread violence doesn't break out. Little things are deterred or prevented. And then if things break out that are really big, national governments will intervene and need to intervene. When national governments do intervene, there's a natural division of labor that goes on. In South Saharan Africa, for example, France has an historic role and it did make sense to me in certain contingencies there that we support the French and that they take the lead because they seem to have the most domain and local knowledge. And I couldn't claim that my department really had that kind of knowledge. And we should therefore be in a supporting role of people who understand more deeply what they're getting into. Now, I understand there's a flip side to that, which is that the Western countries that have the most knowledge of a particular area tend to be those that colonized it before. So there's a flip side to that. So I wanted to, to switch gears a little bit. So one thing that really comes through in, in your book is just how the office of the Secretary of Defense is you know, the locus point for decisions that are coming from the White House that you need to impl- implement, but also you know the advice that you have to give to the president for, based on um, your own you know, bureaucracy that you're in, you're in charge of. So we're speaking um, in the beginning of July. It's been six months since we've had a Senate-confirmed Secretary of Defense. Uh, what impact has that fact that there is no Senate-confirmed Secretary of Defense had on U.S. foreign policy, do you think? And are there any sort of specific decisions or outcomes which you could trace to the fact that, you know, there is no um, confirmed Secretary of Defense? So let's, 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 Take that role by role. The Secretary of Defense is, first of all, the counselor to the president and an advisor to the president as he makes policy. And now you say there isn't a Secretary of Defense. Is that a big loss? Normally, I would say it is. But President Trump has not seemed to listen much to his Secretary of Defense. I say that because I first worked for Casper Weinberger, who was President Reagan's Secretary of Defense, and, and it was quite clear I was at a very low level, but I could see that the President of the United States listened to my boss. Didn't uh, didn't mean my boss always won arguments, um, but uh, the President listened to him, and so also with when Dick Cheney was Secretary to. Bush won and Bill Perry to Bill Clinton uh, and 
uh, Don Rumsfeld and then Bob Gates to Bush one and then uh, myself to Obama. This president doesn't seem to listen to the Secretary of Defense, and therefore the absence of a Secretary of Defense may not make that much difference in policy making. The second job of a Secretary of Defense is to run the department, and there it is going to make a difference. Um, things will go okay for a while because the Department of Defense is very professional, it has a deep keel, and it'll keep going. But what it can't do without a leader is move into the future. And we need to keep moving into the future. That is technologically, warfare is changing. Our labor markets are changing. So how we get good people and continue to get good people in the military changes. None of that, the place will stay there. It'll keep functioning in its current way. But it's very hard to move forward without a leader. So I think that's what we lose. Is there like a specific example to that end you could cite um, as being impacted um, by not having a secretary of defense? Well, yeah. I mean, for example, what new technologies should be uh, supplanting and maybe even eventually replacing in the future manned aircraft, surface combatant vessels? These are big questions. Uh, 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 certain types of infantry specialties. These are big kinds of questions that it'll take the department some time to figure out and will involve some tough decisions. That isn't possible without a secretary of defense unless the big guy is there at the top to make those decisions and to force people to face the consequences of change. It won't happen. it will not be possible for the Defense Department to continue to do what I wanted it to do, and I think has continued since, which is to build bridges between it and the tech world. Mm. Um, so th- there's a lot that goes on that is bringing the new to the Defense Department, and all that will will it won't go away. It'll just sit in abeyance until there's a leader. So so finally, um, of all the secretaries of defense that came before you, who would you cite as, uh, as, as your ideal embodiment of the secretary of defense as, as the, the best secretary of defense prior well, to this you, is, of course? This isn't a dodge, but I, this is the honest answer. I've known them all since Robert McNamara, every single one of them. And I think we've been pretty lucky. Um, they've been very solid, uh, uh, very experienced people. I'll tell you the people who were most helpful to me in my own career. One was Jim Schlesinger, Richard Nixon, Secretary of Defense. I probably wouldn't have been in defense if it hadn't been for the example of Jim Schlesinger. Bill Perry. Mm-hmm. Uh, Who's been on this show before, Bill Perry. Well, Bill Bill is it was a real mentor of mine, and you may not know this, but he stood in for my father at my wedding. That's huh. how close I am to... Bill Perry. So these guys had a big influence on me. And one of the reasons I wrote the book I did was that I hope that it has an influence on people in the future. I think it'll be useful, yes, to future, to, to excuse me, to CEOs and leaders of big organizations who want to know how the biggest organization in the world runs. But I think it'll also be, I hope, inspiring to younger people uh, who are like I was once upon a time, wondering what I was going to do, not sure whether I wanted to make a contribution to public life at all, and if I didn't want to, whether I wanted to make it in defense. Uh, These guys brought me along, 
They watched out for me. They gave me opportunities. I had to work for them, but they gave me opportunities. I try to do that to younger people. I always did in the department, younger uniformed and civilian people. I try to do that today at MIT at Harvard. That's why I'm here. I'm not out making money. I'm trying to inspire younger people uh, in part to join in public life. So these guys did that for me. But we've been lucky, Mark, is the basic answer. We've had a lot of really good secretaries. Of the, I should mention also Jim Mattis, by the way, an old friend of mine. He and I, Jim, Mark, Jim and I used to sleep on the floor of the Secretary of Defense's plane in the early 1990s. He was a major. I was an assistant secretary. He he was one of the aides to the Secretary of Defense. I was obviously a, an official. Uh, so I've known Jim for 25 years. So right up through Mattis, I've known them all. I've known them all, going right back to Robert McNamara. And I think the country's uh, been present company, accepted, of course. I, no, I can't speak for myself. Has been very lucky. Well, we're all lucky that you wrote this book. As I said, it really is a fantastic uh, user's guide to the bureaucracy of, of Washington, D.C., to how national security policies are made. Um, it's, it's really it's like a must-read foreign policy book. So thank you for, for your contribution for writing it. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Ash Carter. And I should say in uh, the midst of that interview, I made a, a slight mathematical error. The Srebrenica massacre in which 8,000 Bosnian Muslim men and boys were murdered uh, occurred in 1995. I, I mistakenly said it's the 27th anniversary. This year, it's the 24th anniversary. Also, uh, after we stopped recording, Secretary Carter and I chatted a little bit, and he sort of wanted to emphasize the deterrent role that he thinks UN peacekeepers play in hot spots uh, around the world, and sort of cited the withdrawal of UN peacekeepers from Rwanda in 1994, uh, which preceded the genocide as sort of an example of what happens when you don't have those uh, deterrent soldiers there. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Secretary Carter, and I'll post a link to his book on the podcast homepage. All right. See you next time. Bye.